Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genocide News Now, the bi-weekly news update from the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. We are your hosts, Teresa Merck and Molly Reagan, and you can find us at www.lemkininstitute.com, as well as on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. All the news and action items mentioned in the podcast are available on our website. A brief note before we begin, Sarah Allard, my co-host for previous episodes and a big influence on this podcast coverage, has taken a step back from the podcast to focus on her academic work. And while we will miss her greatly, we support and wish her well with all future endeavors. Now, let's dive into the news. Much-awaited decision from the International Court of Justice on provisional orders in Gaza was handed down on Friday, January 26th. Although the court stopped short of calling for a ceasefire, it did direct Israel to implement six of the nine emergency measures South Africa requested in bringing this case against Israel. Although international law is often ignored, the fact that the United Nations top court issued emergency orders to Israel regarding its treatment of Palestinian civilians sets an important precedent and is ultimately being viewed as a win by South Africa. The orders issued by the court consist of the following. One, that Israel must take all possible measures to prevent acts as outlined in Article 2 of the 1948 Genocide Convention. This includes not killing members of a particular group, not causing physical or psychological harm to members of that group, not inflicting living conditions calculated to bring about the end of existence of a people, and not carrying out actions designed to prevent births within that group. Two, Israel must ensure its military does not carry out any of the above actions. Three, Israel must prevent and punish the, quote, direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip, end quote. Four, Israel must ensure the delivery of basic services and essential humanitarian aid to civilians in Gaza. Five, Israel must prevent the destruction of evidence of war crimes in Gaza and allow fact-finding missions access. And six, Israel must submit a report on all steps it has taken to abide by the measures imposed by the court within one month of the judgment. South Africa will have the chance to respond to this report. Importantly, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has already stated that Israel will not abide by the court's ruling. While Israel will not be the first country to ignore a ruling by the ICJ, the court's orders demonstrate that the accusation that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians is being taken seriously and that the court could not rule out that possibility. Such a conclusion, drawn by a group of judges on the international community's highest court, is an important rebuke to Israel's military campaign thus far, and will put greater pressure on the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany for the unwavering support of Israel. It could even set the stage for legal cases against the countries for the crime of complicity in genocide, which is legal according to Article 3E of the Genocide Convention. Speaking of, Molly, can you share what is going on in terms of U.S. involvement in the region? Thanks, Teresa. Yeah, so relating to American involvement, the concern that regional tensions around the Israel-Gaza conflict will expand into a broader conflagration was heightened recently when three U.S. service members were killed in Jordan by what President Biden labeled in a statement on Sunday, January 28th, quote, Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. These deaths mark the first for U.S. troops in the Middle East since Israel's assault on Gaza began last October. Attacks on U.S. military bases by Iran-backed armed groups have 
have intensified in recent weeks, with groups asserting that these strikes are retaliation for Washington's support of the Israel war on Gaza, and that their aim is to push U.S. forces out of the region entirely. Importantly, the U.S. has been striking targets in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen in recent months to respond both to attacks on American forces in the region, as well as to deter Houthi rebels from their continued threat to commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The administration has begun to follow through with its promise to, quote, hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing, end quote. On Friday, February 2nd, the U.S. bombed 85 targets in Syria and Iraq that Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and other militias used to launch attacks on American troops, the president said that evening. He promised that there would be more. It's certainly something that we're going to keep an eye on and be sure to update our listeners on going forward. But for now, Teresa, can you tell me a little bit more about what's happening in Kenya in response to allegations of femicide in the region? Yes. So over the weekend of January 27th, thousands marched in cities and towns across the country to protest femicide. For context, femicide is a term used to define the hate crime of systematically killing women, girls, or female people in general because of their gender and or sex. At least 14 women have been slain in Kenya since the start of the year, and news accounts show that at least 500 women were killed in acts constituting femicide between January 2016 and December 2023. It is important to emphasize, as is often the case with sexual or gender-based violence, many more cases go unreported, so the number is likely substantially higher. Two cases in particular received widespread attention from Kenyans this month. One case involved the murder and decapitation of a university student staying in an Airbnb after reportedly being kidnapped for ransom. The student's head was found in a dam one week after her dismembered body was found in a trash can of the rented home. The other case involved a young woman who was found dead in an apartment with multiple stab wounds after going there to meet a man she met on the internet. These cases occurred within a week of each other and demonstrate the frequency with which these crimes are occurring in the country. The president of the Law Society of Kenya said that cases of gender-based violence take too long to be heard in court, which he believes emboldens perpetrators to commit such crimes. Indeed, impunity for such crimes sends a message that bringing justice to those that have suffered is not a top priority, which allows for an atmosphere of discrimination to take hold. We will be sure to come back to this issue in future episodes, and we'll be sure to update listeners on how the situation is unfolding in Kenya. Now we head north to Sudan, where the International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan reported to the UN Security Council that his office has found evidence of atrocity crimes being committed by both the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces and their allied militias in the Darfur region. The current conflict, which began on April 15, 2023, has internally displaced 7.1 million people, forced 1.5 million to flee to neighboring countries, killed tens of thousands of civilians, and left 25 million in need of humanitarian assistance according to the prosecutor's report. Khan's team has interviewed a number of the 555,000 Darfuris, mostly ethnically African Masalit people, who arrived in Chad to escape the conflict. Their harrowing stories and evidence of violence and sexual abuse are chilling. The prosecutor recounted to the council the words of one man who told them that they were targeted because of their ethnicity. Quote, we were verbally abused and called abai and told that we would be exterminated, he said. Abai is a pejorative term that can mean black or slave. Listeners will remember that though Sudan is not a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, jurisdiction was granted by the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1593, which referred the situation in Darfur to the court in March 2005 over growing concerns over the horrific violence in the region. Seven arrest warrants have so far been issued from the investigation, including genocide in the 2000s and the 2010s, but no convictions have been returned and several high-level suspects remain at large. In his closing statements to the security 
Security Council, the prosecutor implored that more be done to compel the actors in Sudan to comply with the court's investigation so that there can be accountability for what has happened in hopes of deterring further atrocities. He said, quote, without justice for past atrocities, we condemn current and future generations to the same fate. That's all we have time for in this episode of Genocide News Now, but be sure to tune in to future episodes and stay up to date on global news. Don't forget to visit our website at www.lemkininstitute.com for more on our work in the field of genocide prevention. And if you'd like to take action and make an individual difference, feel free to take a look at the list of resources on our Take Action page on our website. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. 